Our first scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 2. As we preach through the Old Testament book of Amos, we are reading in the New Testament book of James. Evelyn is going to come and read it for us. Evelyn, if you would. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Keep oneself unstained from the world. We are continuing our series in the book of Amos this morning. We're in Amos chapter 4. Uh, Amos is an Old Testament prophet, and uh, he, has, he has some difficult things to say. If you've been with us through this series, you've kind of noticed that it's been pretty, pretty dark, kind of dreary, a little bit bleak so far. And I'm just going to warn you up front, Amos 4, not any happier than all of what's come before. But the arc of Amos, what you hear if you stick around for future weeks, is we begin to climb out of the, out of the valley starting in chapter 5 and beyond. But you'll see this, this week, he's still sort of diagnosing the problem. He's still pointing out to Israel all the things that have gone wrong. They need to understand the bad news before he can begin to move on to the good news and sort of some of the, the rays of sunshine and hope that are coming, I promise you, uh, but they are not really in Amos 4. We're going to spend some time considering this, but first Jen's going to come and read it for us. Jen, if you would. Amos 4. <clears throat> Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. Proclaim freewill offerings, Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees the locusts devoured. 
yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. The word of the Lord. All right, we're going to spend some time considering this text from Amos 4 together. Uh, imagine a, a dire scenario uh, with me for a moment. Let's say some Sunday morning a visitor arrived here at the church. Uh, he wasn't from Ottawa, not even from Canada. Let's say, you know, for the sake of the story, he's Icelandic or something like that. And he comes into our service and he tells us, well, I have a word from the Lord for you. God wants to say something to Resurrection Church. And that might raise a few eyebrows, of course, being Presbyterian and all, but let's just say for the sake of this thought experiment, this story that we say, oh, let's, sure, let's have the mic for a while. Tell us what God wants to say to the church. And he, and he proceeds to tell us this. God's going to destroy your church. And he's going to destroy your church because you have failed to worship God in the way you were supposed to. Now, beyond the obvious shock of such a message, what do you think your reaction would be? Would you dismiss him for, as a fool? You know, would you drive him up to the Civic, you know, get a mental health checkup of some kind? Uh, let's say you decide to debate with him, to argue with him. What would you offer as reasons why God should not destroy our church? What would you point to as evidence? Would you say, well, look at all of our Sunday services or look at all the tithes and offerings that have been given. Maybe you can think of uh, the sincerity of faith of someone you know. Uh, from a small group or whatever, or some good thing our church uh, had done. What evidence would you want to point to to say, uh, don't destroy the church for these reasons? It's easy to read prophetic books because we get sort of one side of the story, one half of the conversation, which is the prophet's side. Right? We hear what they are saying, but what we don't hear is how the people respond. We don't hear sort of their arguments, their defenses. Here is why I'm doing what I'm doing. We can use our imagination, but we don't really know, unless the prophet tells us, how the people responded. And as I mentioned in the introduction uh, in Amos, it's been a lot of bad news so far. There's been a lot of accusations by God about how the Israelites have not kept up their side of, of the covenant, and therefore God is sending all these punishments, these disasters on them. And so in my mind's eye, maybe in my imagination, an earnest Israelite hearing these sermons might have said, well, what, well I have some counter reasons. The Israelites might have, might have pointed out, is everyone bad? Look, the places of worship in Israel, they're still doing things. Sacrifices are still being offered. Tithes are still being given. Yes, perhaps the worship of Yahweh is strangely merged with the worship of other gods, but it isn't nothing. See, I read chapter 4 as Amos and God's response to an Israel that may have been defensive about their spiritual track record. Maybe they were arguing, we're not really as bad as, you, as you're saying. Our, our worship is, is fine. 
And I want to use Amos 4 this morning to think about what worship is, what worship isn't, and what happens when we don't worship God. So uh, kind of three parts. We'll first talk about Israel's failure to worship. It's kind of the first, the first section. Then all God's calls for return. There's kind of five separate ways God's been calling people to return. And then the, the final two verses, we'll talk about meeting God. So first, Israel's failure to worship. I grant that if you read the first couple verses, verses 1 through 3, it doesn't sound like God's talking about worship. But let me defend my thesis, but let me, let me do that by defining worship. Well, if I say, what is worship, what does that mean? Uh, I think for lots of us, we'd say, well, that's singing to God. Or maybe it's attending a worship service where we sing and pray and read and commune with God and listen, all those things. Those definitions aren't wrong, by the way. I think that's part of worship. But they're perhaps a little bit too narrow. What does it mean to worship someone or something? Well, here's my argument. Worship at its base level is an attribution of worth. Worship is worth. It, it, it worship says about, about a person, about, about a something, this is significant. This is weighty in my life, and I'm going to recognize it as such through my actions. So worship is the attribution of worth. So can singing be worship? Sure, of course it can. Uh, when we sing about God and what God's done, and uh, we are attributing worth to him. Can corporate readings, responsive readings be worship? Sure. In them, we are reminded of who God is, we, we, uh, what he has told us. When we take time to read God's words, we're, we're implicitly treating them as important. Can giving money be worship? Sure, of course. But with your dollars, you are saying God's worth, is, God's worth giving to you. I'd rather have him. I'd rather be with him than have this extra money in my pocket. True worship of God is the attribution of proper worth to him through some action. So with that definition in mind, if I were to tell you, well, imagine a, a pampered, spoiled, self-indulgent, bossy person. And imagine that maybe in, in their house, just sprawled out on some cushion. I picture them with like oversized sunglasses and like a matching, you know, polyester jumpsuit or whatever. But you, you can picture them however you want. Uh, a pampered, spoiled, kind of self-indulgent, bossy person. If you can picture them, what would you say that they worship? To what do they attribute worth? I think the answer would have to be something like themselves. They're the center of their own universe, and more specifically, perhaps, their own pleasure. They take what they want for their own purposes. What they value most in life is getting what they want. And this is the picture that Amos opens with. This is the illustration. And look, I get it. His language is not going to be politically correct. If you, if you were listening carefully, you may have noticed in verse 1, he calls these rich, indulgent, exploitive women, he calls them cows. Now, that's actually not a comment about their weight. Uh, ancient Israelites, by the way, didn't think skinniness was beautiful or virtuous anyways. That's a somewhat modern, even Western phenomenon. But he calls them cows because there's this region on the east side of the Jordan, opposite side of the Jordan River from Jerusalem, called Bashan. And it was known for having the best cows. It had wonderful grazing land, you know, maybe something like Texas or Alberta or whatever. Uh, wonderful land for grazing, good grass, all that stuff. And the cows of Bashan had a reputation, well, I didn't even realize that was going to rhyme, uh, for being well-bred, you know, excellent hides, excellent meat, all that stuff. They were just the best cows. If you're going to say, you know, like Alberta beef, it, they, they just had the best stuff. And of course, cows being cows, cows don't worry about anything. Like someone else is taking care of cows. They're, they, they are being watched over. They're being taken to all the grazing pastures, all that kind of stuff. 
So what Amos is saying in these first few verses is the rich women of Samaria, the rich women of Israel's capital, they're acting like cows. They're propped up by this system that they take no responsibility for. They depend on exploiting others to meet the need. They subjugate both the poor and their husbands just to get what they want, which is, you know, more wine in the cup. Now, an important question is, are these women the only problem in Israel? Is Amos saying, if the rich women could just get their stuff sorted out? No, no, no. There's plenty of bad people to go around, plenty of bad men as well. But these women are sort of illustrative of a person who has gotten worship backwards or gotten worship wrong. Israel was supposed to worship God. God was supposed to be the weightiest thing in their life, but instead they've been acting like animals. They're only concerned for their own welfare. They worship themselves, not God. And therefore God again promises punishment. He promises in verse 2, on the basis of his own character, he's sort of putting his reputation on the line, putting his holiness on the line as a promise. And almost it follows this idea of Israel acting like beasts. He says, look, your enemies are going to come and they're going to catch you like fish. And they're going to drag you out of your land with hooks and fish hooks. And in fact, your land's going to be so thoroughly destroyed. Samaria, the capital, which is a, a, a very tightly guarded, heavily walled city, it's going to have multiple breaches. They're just going to kind of drag everyone out of the city through these holes in the walls, and you're going to be cast into a land far away. Your false worship is going to result in punishment. But then God says something else interesting about their worship. If you look at verse 4, he says, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Now, Bethel was a primary place of worship in Israel, in the northern kingdom. It had very, very originally been set up as a place to worship God, to worship Yahweh, but it had quickly descended, even during the reign of the very first Israelite king, into the worship of other gods and sort of this mixed, the theological word is syncretistic, like a mixed kind of worship. And Gilgal was also a place that had an altar. The, the, the main references we have to Gilgal is it's a place uh, Israel went after they crossed the Jordan River on the invasion of Canaan. And Joshua and the people, they set up an altar at Gilgal to thank God for bringing them into this new land. But apparently in the decades, centuries since that time, Yahweh maybe was still worshipped there, but maybe alongside plenty of other gods. So what's happening in verse 4 is God is sort of sarcastically summoning them to worship. It sounds like a call to worship, but God knows, Amos knows, whenever they go to worship, every time they go to worship, it's going to stack up more sins. Every time they go to Bethel, they're going to add more transgressions. Every time they go to Gilgal, it's another sin is going to get tacked on. I mean, just try to imagine that for a second. Imagine every time Sunday morning you wake up, you know, get dressed, you come here to church. Imagine every time you did that, you were automatically committing more sins. Imagine the life of the church was so thoroughly rotten that it just infected you. Like every time you went there, you just, you caught something. It tripped you up. Every time you participated in what was going on at church, that is what God is saying. Every time you go to Bethel and worship, every time you go to Gilgal and worship, you are stacking up transgressions. Yet, if you look at the rest of verses four and five, what they're doing at Bethel and Gilgal seems to be fine. No obvious red flags. They're bringing sacrifices, that's commanded. They're tithing, that's commanded. They're giving these other kinds of, of offerings, also commanded. But there seems to be a hint, and it's very hard to tell in the language, but there seems to be a hint of, of taunting or sarcasm. Because you don't have to bring daily sacrifices. That's not what the law commanded. You don't have to bring a tithe every three days. In fact, most Israelites would bring a tithe once a year. 
they'd bring the harvest in, you know, give a tithe or whatever. This is way more that, than is required in the law. There's nothing obvious on the surface that tells us something has gone wrong in their worship. So what's the problem? How do we know there's a problem? It's not super obvious in the ESV, the translation that we read from. But if you look at the last line of verse 5, Amos says that people love to do something. And if you say it in a sarcastic tone, for so you, you, know, for you love to do this, what do they love? If you kind of go one line up, they love proclaiming their offerings and publishing them. Now, what does that mean? It means the thing the Israelites love best about going to worship is talking about going to worship. <laughs> Maybe the whole reason they go to worship in the first place is so they can tell other people about that they have gone, or so that other people can see them going. They go to be seen, not to worship. Their sacrifices are not really offered to God. The sacrifices are offered to their own reputation. They love to talk about how well they are doing spiritually. This is the problem. This is why every time they go, it's just stacking up more sin. So let's kind of summarize this first section and put a, put a bit of a point on it. Worship, we said, supposed to be the attribution of worth to God. Behavior is actions that make much of God. And what we find, in contrast, we learn in Amos' critique of Israel that worship is not about the quantity of religious activity. Worship is not about placing the focus on yourself. Worship is not about going through religious motions in order to impress or placate other people. That's not what worship is. But we can look at our lives and find out what we worship. We can look at our lives and see the patterns that emerge. If you just simply stack up all your, your behaviors and actions and desires, what does your life say about what you value? Upon which activities are stamped worth it? This was worth it more than anything else. That will tell you something about what you worship. And the Israelites, though they've made this show, this outward show of worshiping God, they're actually worshiping themselves and their own comfort. So friends, this the, the question for us is somewhat simple. Is there a problem in your, in your worship? And I know you're saying, I'm in church, this is what I, I'm, I'm trying to do it. But look, Israelites would have said the same. They had their religious activities the same as us. What does your life say about what you worship? Okay, let's talk about part two. God's call is for return. Verses 6 through 11, God rehearses what he's done to try to get the people to return to him. The events described here, you'll notice, not happening in the present. Neither are they promises about future punishment. These are backward-looking verses. They are talking about... These are things God has already tried with the people. Five things he lists. Let's run through them. Let's run through them. First, in verse 6, God says, He sent the people hunger as a way to get them to return. Now, technically, God says, you're like, well, it says he gave them cleanness of teeth. And you're like, at first glance, like, that sounds good. Oh, what a nice thing for God to do. You know, fluoride in their water supply or something like that. Clean teeth are good. Um, no, no, their teeth are clean because they haven't been eating. See, often in poetic and prophetic books, uh, you see these regular, like these two-line couplets where there's a line, uh, and it says something, and then there's a second line that intensifies or further explains the first. And so when God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, it's intensified with lack of bread in all your places. So we know then that this is about hunger. This is maybe even about famine. But even in their hunger, even though they felt the lack of bread, the people did not return to God. 
Second, drought. Verse 7, God says he, held the with, he withheld the rain from them for a time. Or the rains would be intermittent. They didn't fall everywhere. This city got rain. That city didn't. Uh, this field got rain. That field didn't. It led to the situation in verse 8 where entire cities are depopulating because they don't have food or water and they'd wander to a different city. Maybe they have water or food over here. Even in this time of drought, the people did not return to God. Third, plagues against crops. God says in verse 9, he sent blight and mildew that ruined gardens, vineyards, fig, and olive trees. In addition, locusts ate the plants. So all these things, the sort of like plagues against, uh, curses against the, pl- uh, the crops, even though their crops failed, the people did not return. Fourth, plagues against people. God says in verse 10, he sent a pestilence similar to what was experienced in Egypt. Now there's, a, there's obviously, if you know the story, there are 10 plagues in Egypt. It's hard to know which one he's referring to, which one fits this description. Maybe it's the painful boils, you know, not really sure. But in addition, God says there was also military defeat, young men killed with the sword, loss of horses. And that, that, that stench reference there is probably the stink of death. Uh, you know, in, 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 a, in a, uh, an army camp with lots of dead. All of these blights that struck the people did not lead them to return to God. And fifth, there's divine intervention. God says in verse 11, he simply overthrew some of the people. Like he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah in the past where God directly intervened and punished them for their sins with death. God says, I did that for Israel as well. Direct punishment. Whereas others, God says, they were like a stick plucked from a fire. So they're kind of like, if you think of like a campfire and there's one end that's burning, you're pulling it out, you're saving it from being burned up, narrow, narrow salvation from punishment. Despite this direct intervention, Israel did not return to God. So we have five interventions and none that worked, you know, worked in quotes. Israel did not return. Now, what are we to do with a section like this? And what does it have to do with worship? Well, two things I think I want to say. The first is, God will act to prompt us to return to him in true worship. God will act to prompt us to return to him in true worship. What we see here, as uncomfortable as it may make you, is a God who is not passive, but active. He acts to encourage his people to return to him. And if you read the the whole sweep of the scriptures, sometimes God acts in kind and encouraging and, and gentle ways, But other times, like the ones that are referenced here, God acts in trials and tribulations. He is not confined to one way of being, a single strategy. He employs different methods as he sees fit. Now, that's like a a truth, or that's 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 a thought. I think some of you are probably still uncomfortable with this idea. And you are maybe wondering, well, how can a drought be part of God if God is love? How do do we reconcile these things? How do we fit them together? I think it's, it's, it's fine to confess that, that part of this remains a mystery. Part of this, we are not sure how to explain. It is not easy to reconcile a God of love with the actions uh, described in this passage. There's no shame in admitting that there is a tension here. But I will offer you this one piece of food for thought, one explanation. You can see how much you like it. False worship, which leads to death and hell and destruction if gone unchecked, it is the greatest danger any of us face. There's no trial, no difficulty, no nothing in this life that could rival it in terms of the severity of its consequences. So therefore, as as sort of harsh as some of these things seem, it is ultimately the kindness and goodness of God to send difficulty into our lives to awaken us to our spiritual danger. 
Now, I know that isn't always emotionally satisfying. If you are the one who does not have enough water, then maybe you don't feel satisfied with that answer. And maybe part of you wants to even protest. Well, I think I could be awakened by far less. Does God need to take such extreme measures? Well, why, why did God go that far? Couldn't he have gone less far and still gotten the response he desired? I mean, it's possible. But the problem with that theory is the response of the Israelites tells us something different. They don't respond to any of it. They aren't returning. They aren't coming back. They have not been awoken by by these difficult circumstances. As harsh as they seem to us, they don't work. The human heart is incredibly stubborn. I think we underestimate how hardened we can become against God. My point is that God will act and does act to try to get us to return to him when we've strayed. I've said this a few times in this series and other, other, other points, but difficulty in your life, trials, tribulations in your life should be assessed, should be questioned, should be investigated to see, is God trying to awaken me to something? With the caveat, not all pain is sin. Of course, not all trials are because you are spiritually asleep. Of course. That's why I'm saying you need to go investigate it. You need to go think about it. But, but some are. Some are. That's what Amos tells us. We should at least consider the possibility. Is God trying to get me to return? But it leads me to the second thing I want to say about this section. That first God acts, but second, maybe this is obvious, we must respond. Over and over what Amos says is, Israel did not return to them. Responsibility is laid upon them. You did not return. You did not listen. We have individual responsibility, but there's sort of this, also this corporate responsibility as well. Return to true worship. This is what the Christian life is all about. Martin Luther, first of his famous 95 theses, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. (laughs) The whole of the Christian life is return. Um, Somehow in the providence of God, we are called to make decisions in real life, in real time, to return to God over and over. All of us do. When you find yourself off track, when you find yourself sinning, you don't sort of throw up your hands and be like, oh, I guess it's too late for me. No, no, you return. You turn, you return. All of us need to. God will use many different means to call us back to him, but we have the responsibility of listening. Part three, meeting God. Now, when examining a text, they teach you this in preacher school, uh, one of the first things you look for is all the connecting words, so words that tie paragraphs, sections together. Uh, We find one of those words in verse 12, the word therefore. So then what we understand is all of 1 through 11 is leading to a grand therefore, a grand conclusion. What will happen? What's, what, what's God going to do? Israel has not worshipped correctly. They have not, they have not returned to God. What's going to happen? And if we hadn't read it yet, and if you closed your eyes right now, what would you have guessed? What would you have said, oh, this is what God is going to say next? If you think back to Amos through so far, what would you expect to be here? Maybe more promises of destruction? A prophecy of invasion by foreign armies. We've heard these things. But what does God promise? He says, prepare to meet me. God is coming to them. And I think the juxtaposition is intentional. Over and over, Israel did not return. Israel did not return. Israel has not gone to where God is. And so God is coming to meet them. 
It's a curious response to Israel's failure to return, and I think it requires just a bit of background to understand. See, all throughout the Old Testament, as you read it, if you, particularly in the Psalms and Prophets, there are all these requests for God to intervene. King David comes along, and he writes Psalms being like, where are you, God? Why aren't you stopping the wicked? Why don't you, you, you bear your arm, extend your arm, and fight for your people? David asks these questions over and over. And then the prophet Habakkuk, he comes along and he just complains. He's like, God, why are you blessing foreign nations? You're going to destroy Israel with a nation that's worse than them? Habakkuk's all mad about it. He has all these questions. There's this repeated longing all throughout the Old Testament for God to show up and do something. Be obvious. Be present. And I think we can understand that. At least I do. Do you have that longing? You hear of a good person dying from cancer. You hear of wars and atrocities happening around the world. You hear of droughts and famines and tsunamis and earthquake. And what do we want? We want God to show up. Are you going to do something? See, Israel believed that when God showed up, it would be to vindicate them. God was going to come. He's going to fight on our behalf. He's going to vanquish all our enemies. Like that prophecy in Narnia, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight, right? That's what we thought. God is going to show up. When God gets in sight, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be good for us. And Amos comes along, and he says right here, well, you've been asking and asking and asking for your God to show up. Well, he's coming, but it's bad news, not good. It's bad news, not good. God will be present in justice, and judgment. And then he includes this verse about who God is, and it, some people even think it's like an old hymn, but he's like the God who can form mountains like a potter forms a clay pot, the God who knows the thoughts of every man, woman, and child, the God who makes the earth turn, the sun rise, that God is coming to meet you, and you aren't ready. Amos tells us something that's quite startling, but we ought to take to heart. All of us we will meet God one way or another. Everyone meets God. There is a day coming when you won't be able to avoid him. If even if you have not turned, have not returned to God, you will meet him. Near the end of Romans, Romans 14.10, the Apostle Paul says, We all stand before the judgment seat of God, everyone, every human, to give an account. And it's a sobering thought. And if you remember, this is a time of prosperity for Israel. No one wanted to hear this. No one thought this was going to happen. These good times are going to last forever. The days were short. Every one of us will meet God. We will be held accountable for what we have done in this life. But if you can hear these words today, it's not too late. It's not too late. There's, there's, there's always time. As long as you can hear, as long as you draw breath, it's not too late. Because verse 12, as foreboding as it is, it hints to something, uh, it's a hint that something extraordinary is going to happen. That God will visit Israel. He will come to Israel in judgment in the years ahead. Assyria is going to invade and destroy and deport the people. But hundreds of years after that, God is coming again. And the people of Israel will meet their God. But he comes not in judgment, but in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. People will meet their God, but he'll have bones and skin and teeth and toes. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He comes to you as a baby. 
riding into Jerusalem atop a donkey. He's coming to you in weakness and humility. He is coming to pronounce judgment, yes, but he is also coming to bear the judgment. So what we understand is that Israel did not return to God, so God met them. And we did not return to God, so God came to us. That is what this passage is hinting at. And we sing this regularly at our church. You know that song, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder? Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh, brought us close to God. See, Amos has talked a lot about sin. (laughs) Well, we're all sinners. There's no avoiding that. Amos has talked a lot about judgment and justice. We all deserve that. There's no avoiding that. What remains for you to do is to decide what to do with the God who comes to meet you in the person of Jesus Christ. God comes to meet you. The God who forms mountains and creates wind has dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. So may he have mercy on us and may we embrace him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we are grateful for this text. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for the warning it has but also the the sliver of hope, the sliver of prophecy that God would indeed come to us. May we embrace Jesus Christ, your son, whom you have sent into the world to be the savior of all who believe. And it's in his name we pray, amen.